Hi, thanks for joining Grief and Frozen Lasagnas every first and third Thursdays. I'm your host, Veronica Day. This podcast is devoted to talking openly about grief and how to help someone who's grieving. We're not licensed professionals nor grief experts. We're just real people with real stories regarding grief, all types of grief. Sometimes it will be sad, sometimes it might make you laugh, but whatever the case, we strive to be honest and real. Hi, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Today we have an ER doctor friend of mine named Ryan, who has been um, gracious enough to sit down with us and chat what his side of grief looks like from a doctor's perspective. And granted, this is just one doctor's perspective. Um, it all kind of started way back in 2018 when we got the bad news that my husband had died. You know, we're, we're so focused on ourselves and what that looks like for us. But I wanted to sit down and hear the other side of it, the person who has to give you the bad news, the person who is walking into that room knowing they may be about to change your life forever. And not always in a great way. Um, keep in mind, uh, while we do this episode, the quality may kind of go in and out a little bit, maybe a little bit of static. Um, we were recording it via Zoom, uh, not in the same place. So please bear with us. <laughs> I appreciate it. What we wanted to do was hear from a doctor's side because you know so many of us have been patients or have been in hospitals or ERs and things like that where we get news that's less than stellar or not exactly what we wanted to hear and so I was curious and I got to thinking about it after my husband died what that's like for the doctor to come in or the nurse to come in and give news that's not great like from the very bad to you know, not terrible but not great how do you, how do you prep for that? I mean, do they teach you that in school? You know, like, how does that, how does that look? Well, there is, you know, usually sort of about a one hour lecture on the topic in medical school generally, but mm -hmm. more of the training happens during residency when you hopefully have the opportunity to, to be there while it's being done and see it done well and maybe less well and learn something about it either way for quite a few times before it's on you to do it yourself. Because if we're talking about breaking bad news generally, then it's kind of an exceedingly common thing that we do, you know, to, if we include everything from, you know, the death of a loved one to, um, you know, a, a, a diagnosis that, um, you know, maybe has a bit, a bit worse prognosis than the, than the person expected, um, you know, that's, if we, if we include sort of all that breaking bad news, then it's certainly something that I do multiple times a shift uh, as an ER doctor, you know, and it, at least once every two to three shifts do I break news of the, of the especially bad kind. So unfortunately, that means that for me, it's rather commonplace. And yet the person uh, on the other end of that conversation, it is, it is life-changing and unique in some cases. And in some cases, if we're including the milder things, maybe not, but, but at least it's, is certainly a disappointment. And um, 
So, you know, being able to carry, um, to enter that conversation with the appropriate amount of gravitas, especially when you may have come from, you know, who knows what the last thing you were doing was. And sometimes it's very easy to have the gravitas because the, because you've been, you've been involved in a, uh, the, the, an episode of care where things were okay. Uh, clearly, you know, when you when I'm thinking about something like CPR and a patient who has died, and then notifying the family, it's actually generally not hard to be in the right mindset as you do that. But um, you know, it's it can be a little bit harder when you've um, uh, when you're walking into a patient's room where uh, you have some surprise. Some, some surprise mass that you found on a CAT scan and it's not exactly uh, something that the patient was expecting, not really something that, that you were expecting to try to put yourself in the right shoes to have the, to have the, uh, to have the empathy for the patient that you need to at that, at that moment when it's still kind of a surprise to you, you know, it's not something that you personally sort of went through in the same, in the same way that you do a, uh, an episode of critical care, like I was describing a minute ago. And remind me how long you've been an ER doctor. Um, well, depending on how you count, I suppose 16 years since the, including my training. And that first time you had to do this on your own, give someone bad news. Was, do they send you in there with somebody else to like help you? Or they just like kind of throw you into the deep end? Yeah, I, I'm, I do know that the first times was always me with my attending. Um, so, you know, the, in medical training, the residencies of various duration, according to what your specialty is, but it's at least three years. I probably wasn't the one actually breaking the news until at least, until, you know, at least six months after being a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, going in as the intern breaking the bad news with my attending next to me, having done it a few times with them before probably would have been the first time. Like I said about how, about how frequent it is. And then just sort of the necessity of not carrying the baggage with you. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was don't name any names. The reality is I, I couldn't name any names. I've done it so many times and, you know, there, there are often some, cases that stick with you, but more or less my experience of this is this sort of gestalt over over hun- hundreds at least of cases so that, you know, it may be thousands really, um, where, uh, you know, if we include the spectrum, you know, I don't remember the first time uh, for whatever that means. It's just, it's just such a part of what we do that, yeah. uh, you know, I can't speak to what the first time was like. I would have been so nervous. Yeah. Um, I, um, I guess I might be able to remember enough to know that the first time that I did it was one of, and this was probably chosen by my attending for precisely this reason, was one of the times it was relatively easy because the news, while bad, was not fully unexpected, you know? Um, I there, gotcha. There are, that is sort of the way to easier trainee into doing something like this. Yeah. Uh, a good number, a good, you know, if we look at just the breaking bad news of a death, a, a large fraction of those cases really are someone who all, who the situation was already known that their time was short. Maybe their quality of life was already poor. 
Um, and there are many of those cases where there's an element of it being a relief uh, to the family. And, you know, if we could ask them probably to the, to the person who's died. Um, and um, those are the, those are in some ways the easiest cases to do, especially when those people are quite prepared. And, um, and like I say, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's a, it's a relief because even though it comes as a death, it's the end of an illness. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, and uh, sometimes you have these caregivers that have put years of, you know, full-time job levels of work into caring for someone whose, whose quality of life may have been quite poor and whose alertness and awareness of that caregiver may have been quite poor. And sometimes, sometimes you can even tell that those people are struggling with the fact that there's, there's a, a bit of reasonable joy to be had in the fact that they're getting their lives back. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes, you know, sometimes bad news has, has multiple sides and you can, you can see on people's faces, they're struggling with that. So um, I think in some ways they've probably already gone through the, or started the grieving process of losing right. their person, whether it's, they lost them to dementia before they actually physically died, that kind of stuff, or long bouts with cancer, you know, things like that. They've kind of already, I'm not trying to make light of it, but they've already kind of made their peace with yes. what's and going happened, to happen. It, it happened as a gradual process without there being someone like me present for a, for a, for a changing moment, you know, a changing moment. So those are much easier for me. Um, uh, the hard thing for me is the un the unexpected things, and you know one of the things they do teach you is uh, to start by asking the the family or friend um, that you're speaking to what they what they already know, and you know the, sort of the less that that is, the more the more difficult it becomes. If uh -huh. if what they know is that they is that they called nine one one and the paramedics arrived and the paramedics did CPR and they put a breathing tube and uh, as they carted the, their loved one away, there were active chest compressions and they weren't breathing on their own, then, you know, they're hoping that there will be a different outcome, but they're less shocked when you tell them that, unfortunately, that you, know, you were not able to revive them no matter what, what you've done. It's the ones where, you know, the, the family member or, or friend or loved one is not with the, the patient, from my perspective, that um, when to witness uh, the illness or the, you know, the, or injury at all. Um, and it's all a total surprise. It's even worse when they're, when they're out of, when they're out of town, out of state, and the whole conversation has to happen over the phone. And then there's the, then there's the difficult situation where, well, they're, they're, they're an hour away, 45 minutes away. Do oh. you, do you, like, how close do they have to be? Like, there's a, there's a, and we're taught that there's a merit in, in having the conversation face-to-face -face and not telling them that their loved one's dead over the phone. Oh, but, I didn't even think about that. That's, but, but where, but you know, how far do you make them drive to be told that like, that, that's a, that's, that's something that. Cause know, then they're just in agony the whole time they're driving, not knowing what's, yes, what right. you and, are about to and say. Are they driving safely? And how, you know, how can they, and it just feels cruel. And I usually will, I, you know, I, I generally, my my own uh, kind of rule on this is if they can't get here in 15 or 20 minutes, I will tell them. If they're right around the corner uh, in the neighborhood, 15 or 20 minutes, then okay.
So, Ryan, is there any one particular case that you remember that, that kind of sticks out in your mind that maybe you went not quite as smoothly as you had hoped? I mean, not that any of this ever runs smooth, but one time where um, maybe the people who were getting the bad news, it, it was a big shock or it was, um, I don't know. I'm sure that you have had to deal with all different types of personalities, and I'm sure that not all of them are just going to sit there and go, oh, hmm, okay, thank you. Thanks for telling us. I know that when the doctor told me that Travis had died, I was really, I think shock is the best word. I was, I was in shock. Yeah, I was in shock. And I wasn't very nice. I think I, I don't think I know I yelled at him to get back in there and fix it. So I'm sure you've had people who are in denial, people who are angry, people who just break down in tears. Um, kind of tell me about one of those things that maybe you, that kind of sticks out in your mind. Well, I told you already there was only one I mean, that, that I wouldn't be able to remember any specific cases, but there but there really is only about one case where I can remember being. I'll say sort of verbally assaulted by um, a couple of members of a family uh, who had an unexpected death in the family. And, um, you know, I won't say it's from my perspective, it's actually not the case of breaking bad news that went the worst because I did my part as sort of as best I could have. Right. Uh, and, you know, and I've had other cases where I know I put my foot in my mouth and, and it felt like I've, you know, not done it well. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, that the fact that, that that was their reaction and the, I think it helps that I both medically and in terms of how I broke the news to them, I felt like I had done everything, you know, by the book Yeah. and that, and that made it very easy for me to, to be able to say, well, you know, that's what they needed to, to do. And, yeah. you know, and it's not, um, I'm, I can take it. It doesn't, you know, because. Because, you know, is this sort of the general, I think this is a general life rule when something happens to you where it seems like it's entirely, you know, because of, because of someone else's needs that they're in a certain way, that it's pretty easy to let that, that, let that go. So is there anything you do to help, like, I'm going to use the term self-care, you know, to, to keep yourself um, healthy? One of the great advantages of being an emergency doctor is the shift work and the fact that it's it's relatively rare to see um, someone who's so in, you know we have many of many uh, uh, I think the current correct term is high utilizers and the the uh, we've often called them frequent flyers in the past which is I, I gotcha yeah but that's well that's pretty well known in the emergency department so we see we have many people who we see over and over again. Um, who, who, you know, may have very serious chronic illness or, uh, you know, often substance abuse, mental health issues are the most, uh, the most frequent of those. Um, but we don't generally have quite the same relationship with people who are, uh, you know, known to be toward the end of life that, uh, that you see in oncology and, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, um, various other specialties. So the, those facts make it relatively easy to compartmentalize um, 
work life versus not work life. And the fact that I can't in general remember specific stories is, is part of that. You know, there's no need for me to take that with me any more than I absolutely must. And so, um, I, you know, I, I actually attempt to erase the slate, you know, like I don't mean to, I don't mean to rem remember um, the specifics of, of such things. Uh, I mean to remember new medical knowledge that I've gleaned from a case or a, uh, you know, a good way of handling a situation or whatever. But in yeah. terms of anything on a personal connection level, I, you know, I sort of actively try not to try not to make those, which, you know, brings us back to, you know, is that, is that good for my patients? I don't know. It I think it that, is. It means that I do a lot of acting. Um, there's a saying in medicine, and I don't know where it came from, but I've heard it from many different people that medicine um, is acting for ugly people um, because there's a lot of, um, there, there's a lot of putting on a game face to be able to, to play your role um, that you need to play to be the, you know, and it kind of goes along with the idea of imposter syndrome that most of us have too. The sensation that, that oh, am I am I really the doctor here? I'm really the senior doctor here that is supposed to know what to do right now. I don't have anybody to ask how to do this better. Um, you know, I guess not. Um, and so you go and you do it, and uh, and you know, sometimes you feel like you're playing a role. No, I I think it's good that you can kind of separate yourself a little bit. Because as maybe me being the next patient that you're coming in to see, selfishly, I want all your attention on me. I want you focused on me doing your job. And that has got to be so hard because I don't know what you just came off of, what you just had to tell someone, or maybe you got some shocking news yourself about a patient. And I think that sometimes many of us forget that, that it's it's hard getting the news. It's hard accepting what the doctor is telling you, but it isn't all about us. I know that may sound kind of cold, but I know that that day that when Travis died, there were a ton of other people in that waiting room and they were all going through something. But at that exact moment, all I could think about was me. And that's okay, but that doctor still has a job to do Actually, the, those nurses, those doctors, they still have a job to do and their world can't stop just because mine did. Yeah, nothing gets you over, uh, nothing Nothing gets you over the the bad news that you just had to break, like walking into the next patient room and having it being the the worried, the worried parent of a, of a, of a child who was perfectly fine, um, which somehow seems to happen fairly commonly and who may be quite angry over having had to wait. Yeah. So... Okay. Well, this is, this is all good stuff, Ryan. Thank you. Um, we're about out of time. So I wanted to say if you wanted to like let us patient type people know, or, you know, regular folk, what's one thing you would want us to know about what you do or something that we could do to help make your job easier? Having mm. patience? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, specifically as, specifically as an emergency doctor in America in the, in the, in the modern era, um the reality is that we are stretched quite thin um mm -hmm. and um you know the the rate at which we are expected to see people is um sort of alarming really and in terms of how little um 
it factors in for when things go go wrong. You know, the um, powers that be, you know, look at averages and not at in, in terms of staffing in medical medical circumstances. They look at averages, and that you know that that's fine, except that eventually you'll have the outlier event where uh, you know your ER with with one doctor and it has three cardiac arrests at the same time. Uh, you know, when they're staffed for a certain number of, of of people, you know, this these are the sorts of things that happen. And so, yeah, as far as having patients, that would be the that would be the situation. And you know, there's an emergency medicine in particular. They've gone from um, and and a really important part of our training is being able to recognize based on triage who must be seen immediately or anything anything else. It's really a matter of who do I need to assess right now to see if I can make a difference on something that maybe the people who I work with, the nurses and all of all of those other medical professionals may not may not have called. So, you know, the very sickest person may be fine. Yeah, I, I get it about the triage and having to prioritize. Um, there have been times where I've been in the urgent care or the emergency room. And while I'm hurting, there are people that are coming in after me that may require more urgent attention for whatever the reason is maybe mine is stabilized or something i don't know but it is hard sometimes when you're like that person came in after me and i just have to remind myself this is not a bakery i'm not number 21 they're not number 22 and having to be patient is really hard especially when you, if it's you that doesn't feel good i've been in the er many times with my migraines and stuff and i'm throwing up i'm sick and someone else gets rushed back. And while it may not seem like they're in any more pain than I am, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what's going on internally. I think that's a that's the the correct way to look at it. Um, then the, the the sort of even weirder thing about it is that because as the physician we're sort of the captain of the ship, if you accept the analogy, and we rely upon the rest of the crew to to, to get everything done. You might be the sickest patient there and uh, in reality and still not be the one that I should be with at that moment because what you need may all be within the capability of, uh, of, of the nurses and the other staff that are there. So it's, you know, um, I might have, um, you know, I might have a patient who's, who's septic and who needs two large bore IVs and IV fluids and antibiotics and a bunch of lab scents and cultures and an x-ray and, uh, you know, maybe even need an RT to come look at them and put uh, some uh, bypass some you know, breathing assistance on them or whatever. My whole team does that. And if, if then, uh, if while that's happening, somebody comes in who has a little bit of a droop on the right side of their face that started 15 minutes ago, um, you know, I let my team take care of that patient who is in some sense, maybe much sicker, maybe much closer to death, but has everything appropriately being done while I go figure out whether this, this other patient needs a specific treatment for a stroke-like symptom, uh, that is a, is a time sensitive matter where, I'm, you know, where you may be able to, to, to help them if you make that decision. And that decision is on me. That makes sense. Um, so it's, it's, it's like, it's not even just the physician sick, like, and you're having to make these decisions about, okay these are the 15 people in my emergency department and you know that person i'm confident is being capably taken care of 
by the nurse practitioner that graduated yesterday and is now working with me. And, you know, the, and this patient's very sick, but has the best nurses in the department working on them. We know what the, what the condition is and what we're doing. This person's the unknown. I'm going to go sort out what we need to do for them next. And that's the thought process on who gets seen next, not the number from the, at the bakery or the deli. So, yeah. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan, for taking time to just kind of, sh- I, mean, I know a lot of us know all this stuff but in the moment. Sometimes we might forget. Because again, we're worried about our loved one, our own sickness, our own, we become very egocentric and it's not that we're selfish or anything, but. It takes years to understand these things. It's, it's very reasonable that people don't. I mean, I wouldn't expect people to. Um, unfortunately, as a society, we do expect people to, because there's not a, way to, a good way to communicate these things. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan, for taking time out to sit with us and share your side of things. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Grief and Frozen Lasagnas is a Patronica production. It's written and hosted by Veronica Day. Music and sound design by Patrick Gary and the musical talents of the Sideshow Symphony. To hear this and other music by the Sideshow Symphony, go to www sideshowsymphony.com or find them on Apple Music or the streaming service of your choice. If you like what you heard or know anyone who might like this, please help us spread the news by sharing it. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review to let other people know about us. It really does help. If you'd like to be part of the show, see photos, or you'd like to find and listen to our other episodes, please visit us at griefandfrozenlasagnas.com Thanks for listening today and hopefully in the future. Take care of yourself and be kind.